You're listening to Nightmare on Film Street. The current time is 6.66. Traffic is clear ahead from here to the afterlife. But it's hell outside. For the next hour, you're on Nightmare Time. So, let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street, horror for the casually obsessed. I'm Kim. I'm John. And we are continuing our Tiny Terrors double feature with Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Man, don't you fucking love horror anthologies? I fucking love horror anthologies. I was was thinking that the entire time we watched both of these movies. I'm having a great time. I just love these movies. Yeah, it's the best way to, I mean, we're all still sad that Halloween's over. We're mourning the loss of oh, yeah. Spirit Halloween and Fog Machines and every other you know fun-sized candy bars and everything. It's been a dark couple of weeks. But <laughs> horror anthologies are like a fun-sized bag of candy. You're, you're going through your Halloween candy every night, eating these tiny little bags of candy. You're like, how can I work these into my daily life? Horror anthologies. <laughs> That's the way to go. Short I'm, stories. I was just talking about you being a candy addict. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How can I justify eating 10 bags of Skittles? Well, I mentioned it on the podcast. It's a business write-off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Had you seen Tales from the Dark Side before Tales from the Dark Side move the movie? Honestly, I don't know if I've, I've may, maybe I've seen like a select few episodes, but outside of that, I've never really watched the show at all. Same. And I, I honestly, I just think we were just too young for it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where, do you know what station it was on? No idea. Mm. But I think just like <laughs> in the, it, it might just be that Tales from the Crypt is a little more available. Yeah. Yeah, Tales from the Crypt is like the cream of the horror anthology TV crop. Mm-hmm. Um, Looms large over <laughs> both of these movies, really. But... Having watched the film, now I'm like, we gotta get into the show. Do we need to get a box set? I think Do we I need... smell a box set I on the horizon? I think we need a box set. Yeah, <laughs> wasn't it produced by George A. Romero? Like, wasn't he the big, like the the guy behind most of it? He, well, yeah, and he wrote at least one of the segments in this film. So I I had read that the Cat from Hell segment, written by George A. Romero, was intended for Creep Show. But I just don't believe it. I think originally I had read that it was intended for Creepshow 2, but I know for a fact from the Creepshow 2 box set we have that includes a comic book of the the, the, the segment that was supposed to be in Creepshow 2. And I think that's bullshit. I don't Honestly, think that's a real fact. Every short film that was being shopped around at that era could have been in Creepshow. Oh, like, yeah. Oh, this could have been in any of these horror anthologies. Like, that's not really a large leap to say. It would have fit perfectly, but... God damn, I'm glad they waited, because it's just like, who knows what it would have looked like if George A. Romero had it directed it himself, but like, mm, God, it's just perfect. That's the other cool thing about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, and maybe what's going to be <laughs> Sorry, hard. Sorry, the title. <laughs> I know. That's what's maybe going to be hard about putting together three good things, is that every one of these segments, every one of these three, four? Three in a wraparound segments is incredible like there's no clear best one i don't think well you can turn off the podcast we're done now yeah (laughs) yeah so three good things i'll go first i'm gonna say that the wraparound is fun and does not overstay its welcome yeah 
Sometimes you get too much wraparound. Uh-huh. Uh, or a wraparound that just doesn't really make sense. Or a wraparound that doesn't make sense. Or it just doesn't feel cohesive. It was done after the fact. The segments don't necessarily lean to... Like, they, they don't enhance each other. One doesn't lead to the next. But this one's just about storytelling. The characters are telling a story within a story. And that always works. And the, the wraparound is short. It's sweet. It's sparmy. It's funny. And it's got Debbie Harry. Right? Yeah, like a nice little connection between last week's episode and this one. We got more Debbie Harry. Yeah, we did that on purpose. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Good thing number two, some incredible special effects. Like, better special effects than you would expect in a movie like this. Like, I'm talking, well, I want to get into specific details, but, like, we've got monsters. We've got, uh, we've got some gross-out gags. It's an achievement in practical effects. Yeah, and it's not just like, we're not just talking wounds and and ailments, like we're talking talking creatures and body evisceration. Like there is, this movie runs the gamut of the special effects team. (laughs) Number three, and I want to touch on this more on the podcast, so I'm not going to elaborate too much, but they directed the fuck out of this film. There is so much style and there's so much art in how it is shot. Especially that cat segment, right? Oh, so good. But it's just overwhelmingly gorgeous. And that that might also be because it's one person directing all the segments and the wraparound. Uh, kind of like Trick or Treat with Michael Doherty. John Harrison is the director of the entire movie. Uh, and so, like, there's each story... I would believe it if you told me that each story was directed by somebody else, but there is a through line throughout each of them, at least a, a visual through line throughout each of them, that really helps tie everything together. Yeah, and you kind of get that with um, Creepshow. It's most notably known for, you know, having those big, bold pops of color. Fuck, I love and that. you know what I mean? Like, it's almost like a cut screen of color, especially that birthday segment. Like, oh, that yeah. has just carried through in Creepshow. And for Tales from the Dark Side, it feels like there's this kind of film noir, Dutch angle thing going on that is just... I'm just obsessed. Yeah, bonus thing might just be Steve Buscemi. (laughs) (laughs) But those are three good things about Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. Uh, We're going to throw the trailer on right now. When we get back, we're going to get into detail on all of our favorite moments of this horror anthology. Stephen King, originator of Pet Cemetery. (gasps) Arthur Conan Doyle. Author of Sherlock Holmes. Michael McDowell, creator of Beetlejuice. George Romero, director of Night of the Living Dead. Now, these four masters of everlasting horror bring to the screen four tales of overwhelming terror. I warned them, but they wouldn't listen. Tales of diabolical fate. You promised you'd never die! Tales of ghastly revenge. Grow, O light. Rise, O light. Come forth, O light. Open his eyes. Tales of ruthless evil. That cat has killed three people in this household. I don't believe this. Kill it, bury it, and bring me its tail. Tales from the dark side. Well, that just about takes care of that, doesn't it? Come live the nightmare of your choice. 
Tales from the Dark Side. The movie. Tales from the Dark Side, the movie, is currently sitting at a 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb. A very surprising 46% on Rotten Tomatoes with an audience rating of 44%. I really thought the audience rating would have been higher this on that one. This had such bad reception. Maybe the TV show's that good. <laughs> like, that's the problem. They're like, compared to the TV show, this is trash. Honestly, I'm just going to stand hard on my stance from the last episode that they were people were just satiated on horror anthologies. They just overdosed. They, they had, had too, too much. much. They didn't know they had a good thing and they had an abundance of it. Well, I guess the the, the modern reevaluation appraisal is that's a 3.1 out of 5 on Letterboxd, which that, frankly st- still seems low. Better though. Better. Better. We're making improvements here. <laughs> yeah, something I was really surprised to read was that all three of the segments were based on classic fiction. So they were either written by Stephen King or... Um... <laughs> classic fiction. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, so the, the cat one, written by Stephen King, but the first fi- uh, the first segment, the what is it, Lot 239 or Lot 237? 249. I was close. Is based on, what is it, like an Arthur Conan Doyle story? Yes, ma'am. Wow, I remembered something. Forgot the sir, but that's all right. <laughs> Sorry. He's, he's, oh, God. He's not around anymore to take offense. <laughs> oh. um, and was adapted by George Romero, right? Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> God damn it, John. Have the facts open to fact check my bad memory. According to the internet, Lot 249 was, at least the screenplay, was written by Michael McDowell, who also wrote The Lover's Vow. Oh, right, yes. Later in the movie, and was, do you know? Co-writer on Beetlejuice. Co-writer on Beetlejuice. Okay, something else I read. Sorry to be like <laughs> fact machine today, but he wrote the novel adaptation of Clue, but he wrote it off the shooting script, and it's got an extra ending in it. An extra, so we've got a fourth ending. Yeah. We should get that book. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so classic fiction, yeah. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, rewritten by Michael McDowell, obviously Cat from Hell, probably based, it's... Based on a Stephen King story, you said? Yeah, classic fiction. Written by George A. Romero. And The Lover's Vow is is maybe one of the more interesting ones because it's written by Michael McDowell. But it's based on like a classic legend. Oh, yeah, like centuries old legend uh, from a, a book of Japanese ghost stories called uh, Kwaidan, I think is how it's pronounced. They, they did adapt a few of those stories into an anthology film from the 70s, which includes The Lover's Vow story mm. under a different title. I think it's called The Woman in the Winter. Or the Winter Woman, the Woman in the Snow. That might be actually be it. Uh, if you like horror anthologies and also artsy cinema, you might want to check that one out. I I can't vouch for every story in that movie, but visually gorgeous. Like it, it's it, it, it's stunning looking movie, but some of it's a little long. <laughs> And you kind of get that vibe with the horror anthology itself because this is one thing that I noticed in in watching this because I hadn't seen it since I was really young. Oh, it's been a long time. Yeah, it's been oh, a long okay. time. So much so that I had forgotten everything and then when the gargoyle showed up at the end, I'm like, oh yeah, there's a gargoyle! It's fucking rad. Is that it does really feel like it's adapted because it is a very, they are very wordy short stories. Does that make sense? Uh, you mean like it's got a lot of dialogue? Yeah, like okay. I, I felt... Oh, the, the, that classic literature <laughs> where like, ah, oh, so this is what it's like to live in this world. You're 18 pages into a short story and they're like, and this is where the story began. Like, <laughs> what was the rest of it? Why did I need to know what it's like to hitch a carriage? Oh, fucking Anne Rice. I'm looking <laughs> at you with your vast fields and castles. But 
that was the one thing I noticed the difference between the two anthologies we're kind of comparing is that this one just requires a little bit more of an attention span. I find it's a little I, bit more gothic. True. I had a hard time following the very first segment <laughs> so much so we had to rewind it because I had no idea what was going on because everybody was just talking. Oh, no. <laughs> In this movie, people were talking? <laughs> My God. Kim just got distracted by our dogs. Our dogs were, like, fighting, and she was like, look how cute these guys are. Anyway, John, what's going on? I'm like, we're 18 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah, so we had to rewind it, and there was just a lot. They, like, for being a segment about three college guys, I was like, whoa, they talk too much. <laughs> It had the air, like, despite being written by Arthur Conan Doyle, it really had the air of, like, an H.P. Lovecraft story. It did feel like it was going to yeah. be pretty Lovecrafty. Just a bunch of snooty rich people who were taking advantage of a grant that Steve Buscemi was up for, who was the rightful winner of that grant, who should have gotten it, because I, th I get the impression he's not there uh, from his parents' money. He's, like, earned a scholarship. He's there because he's actually smart and was sort of tossed aside in the contention for this, this grant because somebody accused him of stealing an artifact. Like a little hippo yeah. in stone. <laughs> and he clearly knows that it was dirty pool and he's got no problem saying that to everybody like to their face oh yeah there's lots of caddy dialogue but he's got an ace up his sleeve he's he's just had delivered lot what? 249 okay. what a fucking random revenge plot it's like it's so random when you think about it i love it but you're just like you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get revenge with a motherfucking mummy. So what? Well, well, I just so happen to have a mummy. Does do you think that the revenge part was part of the plan, or do you think that he he had just snagged a great deal on a mummy and a sarcophagus, and he just so happened to find a way for revenge? Okay, so it takes. I'm gonna assume it takes a lot of hunting to find yeah. a mummy that can be reanimated and comes with its own reanimatable scroll. Yeah. He knew where that scroll was. Like he what? knew did he? Yes he did. He, he seemed surprised. He wasn't just opening its belly to smell the frankincense. Like it he, seemed like it was. He was doing a, a, a serious looky loo. But <laughs> I don't know. He seemed pretty surprised to find a scroll hidden in the guts of this mummy. I don't think he did. Okay. I think he knew what he was doing. And, a... and especially, too, because when it was delivered and uh, the two guilty party other people... well, Christian Slater had nothing to do okay, with this. Okay, but he's the sister of... Or he's the brother of the sister who was definitely red-handed in this. He's not completely innocent. He's guilty by association. And it's also his best friend who's a douche. So why would you have a best friend that's a douche? You're guilty. He seems like he's friends with Steve Buscemi as well. Like, he's trying to bridge both worlds. Mm. He's a guy, honestly, he does not seem like he's been poisoned by his own money. He's hanging out in his own little dorm room. That's fair. It's fucking trash. All he wants to do is watch sports and eat donuts and Doritos. <laughs> and he's he seems very... Um, apologetic about the whole situation with Steve Buscemi. Yeah, but he doesn't say anything. He, he... wasn't involved in it. Okay. Like, he didn't have anything to do with it, but he's just like, hey man, you got a raw deal here, I know it. <sighs> I'm fighting with you because <laughs> I we have to put a pause in this scene because later in the movie, he sees his sister bring the statue that Steve Buscemi was accused of stealing and she hides it somewhere on his mantle. He sees it and he says fucking nothing. Back to our, back to the beginning of the segment. So, I think Steve Buscemi has had this plan all along because when along. when lot 249 is brought into his apartment, he's like, no, nah, no, nah, you guys stay. You guys stay. 
let me open this. You guys stay. <laughs> but he doesn't need them there. No, well, it's heavy. He needs help picking it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it doesn't like it, that, that's how hard it is to move. You'll let your enemies help you. <laughs> oh, man, that's extra cruel. And you're like, yeah, uh, let's put it in the corner. No, I don't like that. Can we put it over here in the hall? Mm. And then, you know, he and then you find out he could reanimate it and it could walk and move on its own to where he no, wanted it. <laughs> He really, you're right though. He's not very surprised by the whole mummy. I don't know. He's a, he's, he's got a, a smarm about him the second that box is in his apartment. Okay, fine, but it's I, I maybe I'm just buying the ruse that he's just gonna make a ton of money selling the mummy. This is like the the same as our conversation on Jaws two about whether the shark had a vendetta or not. Steve Buscemi had an intentional mummy vendetta. This is completely different because <laughs> a shark is not a human being who plans ahead and orders a mummy. The you sharks know what I'm would saying? like to have a word with you. Yeah, well, they can come meet me on land and then we'll duke it out, okay? I think that Steve Buscemi's character is aware of mummy curses. <laughs> As you are. As a student of history. Because he grew up reading the backs of cereal boxes. <laughs> he seems quite well educated. For at least in his own field, okay? Mm. And I'm sure he was just like, oh, well, this is a happy little accident. I know exactly what, what to do. What a happy little accident, Bob Ross and Steve Buscemi. Fucking <laughs> all stories are based on one nugget of coincidence. People that seize opportunity. That's storytelling. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Carry on. <laughs> What a great segment, though. Don't you love a fucking mummy? Yeah, I love a fucking mummy. <laughs> Especially a mummy that'll come around and murder people for you. Yeah, all he had to do was, like, call forth. This is this is exactly what you want out of a revenge plot. You don't even have to lift a finger. The revenge yeah. is done for you. And who's going to ever point it back to you? And even if they're just like, I don't know, there's a lot of mummy dust in this apartment. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite part about this entire segment was how much the mummy was just walking around and people were barely missing him. They're like, some dusty guy walked by <laughs> how did nobody see the mummy even julianne moore julianne moore uh sees who killed her boyfriend in her own house and, and her look not, is just like she, huh yeah she's just like caught you buddy she's not like is that a fucking mummy? yeah like it is emaciated dusty and covered in bandages and she's like Steve did this. Yeah, she just immediately knows. She's like, I'm gonna get back at that motherfucker. Yeah, no absolute horror on her face at all. Why doesn't she and tell her, the cops? Her boyfriend's brains are in her fruit bowl. Yeah, no, like his brains, that's the best part, right? Like, so Steve Buscemi likes to like scare everybody by telling them like how they did the mummification process and how gross and gory Movies it was. love to talk about the nose scramble. Yeah, it's way cooler than being like, yeah, and they cut his belly open and took his guts out. Yeah, it's pretty metal as fuck. <laughs> just the idea that they wouldn't cut the head open is great. I, I don't know. Like, no, I guess nobody necessarily thinks until you find out about mummies that you can reach your brain through your nose. Isn't that how you figured that out? Well, I mean, people who do, do cocaine know it. <laughs> I don't know if it goes to the brain. Yes, it does. <laughs> I, I don't know about that. <laughs> right into the brain. It's not exactly how it works, I don't think. <laughs> I don't understand why she doesn't tell the cops. Because she's like, I'm going to get back at that motherfucker. You're like, you know how you get back at him? Putting him in jail for 30 years. Yeah, and knowing he's got a supernatural mummy, like, why are you taking this on all by yourself? <laughs> yeah, you cannot fight evil like this. It's not going to work. Though Christian Slater is able to take him out with a turkey cutter. So is the mummy really that all powerful? He's quite a, he's a dusty boy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, apart from Julianne Moore's reaction to the mummy being a mummy and not being horrified. Yeah. The other thing that just like rubbed me the wrong way about this segment was that 
Steve Buscemi is just talking about flipping this mummy. Like he bought it like a house (laughs) to redo the porch and sell it for profit. The first thing he does is take it out of the package. (laughs) He fucking takes the bandages off the mummy. Every collector will tell you this is a bad idea. Now, I'm sure it's because the special effects team was like, all right, we'll do the mummy segment, but you're not covering all of our fucking amazing work. Like, we're making a dope mummy face, and uh, we want to see him. So they made Steve Buscemi cut off all of his wrappings. I'd love that they, he couldn't just cover up, cut off the face and keep the rest of the wrap. They're just, he's like, nope, got to see this whole body. I don't know who's selling a mummy that they've Who taken all the Who a naked bank. mummy? <laughs> I mean, let the museum get him naked, right? <laughs> They're gonna. Well, even at one point, like, the museum... I guess he's like the head of the the university museum. They're invest- like, they're, yeah. oh, this sarcophagi would be worth a lot more if there was a mummy in it. Slap me. <laughs> no one's no one's surprised that he has this giant sarcophagus in his apartment. They're like, yeah, no, that's a totally normal thing that a history student would have. Yep. Yeah, and especially after they've they've accused him of stealing like a priceless artifact, and then he has a giant priceless artifact in his apartment, and it's just like. It's kind of looking like you actually did it. <laughs> yeah, no, the, these ones I bought. Yeah, these, <laughs> these, these ones I, I acquired on my travels. It is a really fun segment, though. Like yeah. I am, I am harping on it a lot, but it's just, it's just f- for the fun logic of it. Like I really fucking love a mummy, and I love how he gets revenge when he kills Julianne Moore by stuffing her with the chrysanthemum flowers. Oh my god! You're just like fuck yeah. Yeah, like he doesn't mummify everybody that he kills. He just uses one part of the mummification process enough to kill them. He takes the brains out of her boyfriend. He stuffs chrysanthemums in a in a wound in, in Julianne Moore's side. And then at the end, Christian Slater thinking that he's uh, sort of like banished the mummy back to wherever he's, you know, back to the afterlife. Uh, It turns out that uh, Steve Buscemi has swapped the scrolls. He hasn't burned the right one. And Julianne Moore and her boyfriend come back to kill Christian Slater. Because they're mummies now. Because they're mummies now. Oh, so good. Because you think that the mummy's just doing it because you're like, oh, yeah, mummies. This is how a mummy would kill somebody. That's how they know how to kill. That's, That's what they know. Sure. But he was turning them into other mummies. So now the scroll is doesn't just work for one mummy, it works for three. It's like a pyramid scheme for mummies. <laughs> it is a pyramid scheme for mummies. <laughs> he recruited them to Avon. Yeah, first we take Harvard, then we take the world. <laughs> yeah, it's a great little segment. Uh, I love it. It's a it's funny to assume it's it's funny to think about it being written in the 1800s. You know, like or early 1900s. I don't know. Fucking the so. universityness of it, I can I can vibe with. I get that. The old money of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But Cat from Hell, a more modern tale, is just one of the best goddamn stories of the entire movie, right? It's interesting, too, because normally with a horror anthology, you get a little horror story with a surprise at the end. This one doesn't pull the rug out from you at all. They tell you right up the fact... This cat's evil. It's killing people. And maybe the question is like, is the cat really killing people? But it's a horror short. We know the cat is killing people. And you know what the cat does? Kills people. It's great. And then it's it's done. <laughs> yeah. The premise is that an old, uh, an old rich guy who's really on death's doorstep it hires an assassin to kill a cat that has invaded his house and he believes murdered his entire family. Uh, he's murdered his sisters and a friend of his, I think, right? I think it's like a sister, a friend, and a butler or something. Yeah. And he assumes that he's next. And man, what a what a what a great story to watch in 2023 because he figures the cat's motivation, the cat's reason for this murder spree is that he's a pharmaceutical tycoon who's done a lot of testing on essentially fentanyl 
with cats and has maybe over the course of uh, five or six years killed thousands of cats. And this cat's the Grim Reaper of cats. <laughs> this cat has had enough. This cat's an assassin that the other cats have hired to take out this old man. Which is pretty great because the old man hires a hitman to kill a cat. And what a great unlikely pairing for, for your like bad guy, good guy. You have a, a cat versus a hitman. What a great setup. Just fun. Yeah, because everybody, including the hitman, is just like, what an easy job. No big deal. Yeah, sure. I mean, cats hide and they're hard to get a hold of sometimes, but <laughs> I'm sure we could just poison some milk. We could just hang out with a shotgun in a room and blow it away the next time it passes you. But this cat's sly. This cat's... Uh... I mean, all cats are sly, but this oh, cat's sure, yeah. real sly. <laughs> I love when we see how it has murdered all the other people in the house. Like, one, it just, like, trips somebody while they're walking down the stairs, and she breaks her neck. That's, okay, sure. Maybe the cat didn't do that I one mean, on purpose. I mean, my dogs do that every day. <laughs> but but the, second, the second death is the absolute best, because it suffocates an old lady with its own body. Like, it starts by just putting its, its paw on, it's, <laughs> on her mouth. It's so great, because, you know, there's that, that, like, urban legend that cats will steal a baby's breath. Yeah, yeah, And, like, yeah. cats were responsible for SIDS or some or something, like, yeah, along those lines. Yeah. Um, um, and just cats are evil in general. Yeah. Uh, so you think that the cat's going to do something like really supernaturally by like standing on her chest and like she's going to exhale and the cat's going to breathe it in and we're going to see it visually. But like, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> the cat becomes a pillow and suffocates her face. <laughs> yeah, it starts by putting a paw on her mouth. And when it wakes her up, it just like latches onto the back of her head and suffocates her with its own belly. <laughs> it's fucking hysterical. <laughs> Oh man, the, the weird cast in this one too. Like the old lady who who died from suffocation was the mother in Ace Ventura. I love her. Who makes the cookies, laces out, and the the old man that hires the assassin is William Hickey, I think is his name. He's <laughs> he's the old he's the dad from Mouse Hunt who's like leaving his string fortune to his oh, sons. Oh, I love him. <laughs> he's the best. We also found out uh, just looking up credits that he's the the mad scientist from Nightmare Before Christmas. That blew my mind because I've been listening to his voice forever and I never associated the two. Yeah, you called it while we were watching it. And it's also too because he was in the wheelchair and he was. Was wheeling around oh and I that's was like, all it was <laughs> he's the man i've seen this before and of course the assassin is the cab driver from scrooged oh so good honestly this trio of actors like even the the butler um who's doesn't he play hector in breaking bad uh i can't remember his character's name in breaking bad but he's also in a wheelchair in breaking bad and he does the bell thing yes all three of them are the sa- occupy the same space in my brain. Like they what? are all the same actor in my head. Okay. They all have like really similar mannerisms, that same like smarmy acting style. Okay. It's just crazy to see them all in the same segment because Interesting. They're literally on the same shelf in my head. And we you know, first segment we had a mummy, and then the second segment we have a cat. Revenge. <laughs> Egyptian connection is all I'm saying. Oh. Okay. I just think that thematically they pair well together, maybe. People hate cats. People are scared of cats in a really weird way. Like, you you get it all when you're talking about how cats would steal the breath of old people or babies. But everybody, like, in an old retirement home, if there's a cat, they're like, oh, if the cat sits near your bed, it means you're going to die tonight. You're like, what the fuck? Cats are either, like, you're afraid of them or you, like, revere them. Like, they are deities, gods, or... Cats got it so good. Just evil. <laughs> like, what? And it's honestly, it it's honestly because they just have a don't-give-a-fuck attitude, and we're like, yeah. oh, God, that cat knows something. You cannot buy a cat. Like, you, you like you can't, like, 
win a cat over is what I mean to say. Like you, th- <laughs> a cat cannot be bought. <laughs> yeah, you think you are. You think you're great friends with a cat. Like me and this cat, we're tight. And but then, you touch its belly for two seconds too long. <laughs> you get fucked up. Your hand gets mangled. You're like, oh, we're back to square one. It's just like, <laughs> you know, get zero days without incident, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the real gem of this, though, is like, it's it's a great story. It's got some of the best transitions in the entire movie. Oh, my God. The this old is man, the best segment just because of that. Yeah, the old man is telling the story of why he wants him to kill this cat and all the havoc that this cat has brought on this house. And we transition from those stories of the past to the present. By just going down hallways and turning on the blue lighting and then we're in the story. Yeah, it's like an incredible stage play. Oh, it is exactly like a stage play. Current time is happening in the foreground and then the past story is replaying in the back of the stage. So good. It's brilliant. It looks incredible. And also has a fucking cat that jumps down a goddamn dude's throat. Man, I think about this segment all the time because the the image of the cat just like stuck in a guy's belly and then crawling out at the end when the old guy comes home is so fucking gross and I love, love, love it. It's a weird way to kill somebody. I thought right? maybe the, the cat was gonna occupy the man, you know, and be occupy. like... Occupy. Yeah, like... like an, possess him. Like an alien would or okay. a parasite, but he just nah. was... He was just sleeping in that dead body. <laughs> he, just suff- he just suffocated him by crawling down his goddamn throat. Yep. Oh man, so good. And then that that gives the old man a heart attack when the when the cat comes climbing out. It's so gross. It looks so fucking good. No, it is it is like a really insane special effects sequence and so well done that they even at one point cut to the real cat climbing out of the dummy they've made. Oh yeah, like they get a real cat to do it. I'm sure the cat hated it. I mean, but there's it mo- looks so awesome. for integral parts, it's very clear that it's like a cat stuffy or a oh, cat yeah, dummy yeah, yeah, or whatever, yeah, yeah. but they do such a good job of putting like a mouse appliance on the actor so it looks like his mouth has like swollen open yeah uh i guess dilated is the word (laughs) something i read when when i was just kind of updating myself on some facts about the film was most of the critical reviews were talking about how hard it was trying to be like film noir and stuff just this one segment though but I think that's the best thing about this movie. It's crazy how they were just knocking how like over stylized it was. And it's just like, what the fuck are you talking about? We're not in the real world right now. We're in the dark side. A cat is in someone's (laughs) belly. Let them have their blue light transitions. Just fucking applaud like you're supposed to. (laughs) This is peak cinema. (laughs) I mean, I guess that there's like a darker, grittier you know back alleyway kind of quality to the last segment the lover's vow but all but the, the, the really cool thing is that like all of these stories they they exist in a similar world at least stylistically and they're very different from the wraparound the wraparound is very warm it's modern everyday life despite mm-hmm. the fact that we have a witch who's literally trying to cook a little boy in an oven did we say that is that that, that the wrapper the whole idea of the wraparound is that Debbie Harry is a witch she's trying to get this kid in the oven because she did the math and he's got to be in there for at least six and a half hours <laughs> uh, you know like 350 uh, an hour and and a half per pound you weigh this much i gotta get you in the oven by 130 at the most and he's just biding his time by telling her stories from her favorite book the tales from the dark side but it's been so long since she's read these these stories since she was a child she doesn't really remember them uh, and he saves the best for last he saves a love story because she she said that her favorite stories are romance stories and this is one of the best short stories in a horror anthology ever it's and I, so good and honestly you know 
this this kind of story has been adapted and adapted and adapted. Oh yeah, no, like, this this is a common story. Like it's it's essentially a folk tale. Yes, exactly. Like it's not going to pull the wool over your eyes. You're gonna gonna know what's happening from the get go. I mean, I think the first time I saw it, I was surprised. Oh really? Probably. I mean, I was a kid. You're like I was eight. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it's like it's. A different variation of, you know, like the the woman with the ribbon, how she's living with her husband and she tells him, like, never untie the ribbon, never untie the ribbon. And they they have a long, happy life. They have kids. And then one night when she's sleeping, it's been they've been married for like 13 years. And he's like, fuck it, I'm doing it. And then her head falls off. So I'm going to talk. I want to come back to the woman in the ribbon thing when we get to the end of this story. But like the setup is that James Reimer is a struggling artist. He looks like. okay. first we have to talk about. So the opening shot of the movie is great because one. It's just a glimpse. Stop laughing. Uh, we we go over a gargoyle and down into this penthouse art loft. And the gargoyle is essentially looking down through his his uh, sunroof. And it's just a flash. It's just an image. We don't linger there. You don't know how integral it is to the story. No, it's just establishing mood, you know? So good. Like, gothic, weird, dark city atmosphere. He's building, like, a fucking high school bridge. Yeah, out of popsicle <laughs> sticks. And he's like, why doesn't anybody want to buy my art? <laughs> well, I can like, tell you exactly wow. why. <laughs> yeah, like, he's he's essentially, he's working on a piece right now, and he's late for a meeting with his agent at a corner bar where the agent essentially says that we haven't sold anything in a long time. You're shit. <laughs> yeah, you're trash. I'm fired. Like, you're fired. I'm not representing you anymore. And you have to get all of your stuff out of this art gallery by tomorrow or it's going in the bin. He drinks himself stupid. On his way home, he gets attacked by a monster in the alleyway. It it rips off like the limbs and the head of the bartender. Uh, and you know, he while he's pleading for his life, it corners him. Uh, and it's just this gross fucking bat from hell looking creature. She's beautiful. I- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but he's terrified of her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's like full-size gremlin. Like, yeah. if a gremlin could fuck you up from above. <laughs> yeah, he's begging for his life, and she says, I'll let you live, I'll let you go, as long as you never speak a word of this to anyone, you never tell anybody what I look like, what happened here, what you saw, forever. You have to promise uh, and he's like, yeah, 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 I promise. And she goes, cross your heart and slashes him on the chest. Great fucking line. <laughs> fucking love that moment. Uh, and, you know, while he's frantically trying to get back home, he stumbles uh, He stumbles into another woman who also looks scared to be in his fucking shit neighborhood. Like, this is, this is at that time where New York was also, like, a hellscape, and you just didn't leave home after dark there if were, you lived in the wrong and neighborhood. The, the area he was in, there was no traffic, there was no people. Like, there was just graffiti and Steam that's it. coming out of the... <laughs> Like fucking, yeah, yeah, stinky steam. Yeah. The bartender literally pulls a gun out of the cash register and makes sure it's loaded before he leaves to walk home. Now, clearly he needed it because he died. <laughs> he never made it home. Uh, but yeah, James Reimer, luckily, uh, falls in love with this mysterious woman who finds him in a state of panic, which is hilarious because he is not the kind of person you should go home with i know he's one he's definitely been like drowning his sorrows so he's hammed oh yeah and he's like come back to my apartment you can use my phone to call a cab but also but not even just that like their meet cute is him dragging her into like a an opening of a building covering her mouth and going don't fucking scream don't say anything it's everything we're all in danger follow me you're like no no one would (laughs) 
I guess it's an era before cell phones, so an era. <laughs> it's a time before cell yeah. phones. So she is, I mean, her story is that she's lost and she was trying to look for a cab and cabs don't come here. He's the kind of guy you hope to not run into when you're lost. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's just, that's the look he's got. But she sees something in him and they they, they build a life together. <laughs> Yeah, he becomes this affluent artist. She hooks him up with a gallery. They get married. They have two kids. For some reason, they're doing great, but they never move out of that loft. (laughs) Yeah, no, they stay in the same neighborhood. And every year, they celebrate the anniversary of the night that they met because his life changed forever since then. She she literally saved his life. You don't know. I almost died that night. But this is the craziest part is, and just to go back to like how James Reimer, not the kind of guy you want to hang out with, or at least his character is not the kind of guy that you should be spending time with when you meet him in an alleyway. They're talking about how they met, and his kids literally say, didn't you think dad was gonna rape you like, oh my god what? <laughs> like i mean that's what we all thought for her in that moment like that's that's those are the the fears going through her head but like you don't that's not a story you yeah, tell like, your kids like, i get being honest and practical with your kids but like not that honest you know the night that i met your father i thought he was gonna rape me <laughs> turns out true love in this very house <laughs> What a weird marriage. Uh, but, you know, he breaks down. He's He's been sculpting and drawing this demon that attacked him, but he's always been quick to hide it, not to show it to anybody. And, like, the the, the drawings look awesome. As an artist, it's got to be real it's hard. It's his best work. <laughs> it's truly his best work. Even when we go to the gallery that's going real well, he's selling or the, the, the showing at the gallery that's going really well, and he's selling pieces for, like, $23,000. It's, like... A fucking door with wood nailed to it. <laughs> you know? It doesn't look like anything much. These drawings and this sculpting that he's been doing of the creature that attacked him would would sell for a ton of money. So he's he's really doing his best to, to hold that promise. And he feels like every year that goes by... And they celebrate their meeting and how they met and what what awful place he was in. He's he's lying to his wife and the lie is getting bigger and bigger over the years. And he finally breaks down and wants to tell her the truth about what happened to him that night. And he shows her the sculpture and he shows her pictures uh, and, and that he's drawn. And he explains that he was attacked by this this monstrous figure. And it's a huge mistake. <laughs> Yeah, so at this point, I'm sure we all realize that she's the gargoyle. Yeah, like she's, she breaks down and she's like, but you promised! And her voice starts to change and her hands get all fucking weird and just fucking like wings start breaking out of her skin I love, that's my favorite kind of like werewolf transformation and I love that they relate it to, or I love that they did it here with the gargoyle because it's like the gargoyle was inside that body and it's just busting out. Oh man. So good. It's like that scene in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street was it Dream Master where she's turned into a cockroach or a grasshopper Ugh. oh man it looks like that screaming mad George style of special effects it's so fucking gross and they it's not just one quick shot like they linger on it it's, it's shoulders it's well. elbows wings pop out she's sloughing off all that skin it's killer and then we hear screaming in the kids bedrooms because they're fucking gargoyles too and they're so cute they're like nah, daddy nah. why <laughs> did you tell <laughs> 
that's the cool thing about this story that I think is like the 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 woman with the ribbon on her neck is like a tragic story. Like I've got this flaw about me that you can't you have to just deal with, and if you try, if you, you disobey my wishes, she dies in his hands. Essentially, is the idea. Like you take the ribbon off, her head falls off, she's dead, and now it's just because you couldn't hold this promise, the woman you loved is gone. This one's a little different. You know, it's still a tragedy. It's she's still real totally. sad about it. She's when she bites his neck and kills him. But what fucking harm is it if she's the only person he tells? Wouldn't it have made their relationship better? She doesn't make the rules of yeah, ancient okay. lore. <laughs> so it's just that he... because she's punished by this, too. Like, she doesn't want this to happen because she immediately um, flies back to her perch and her and her kids become sorrel, like sorrowful statues. Yeah, they become so, stone again. Yeah, which I, is obviously like some kind of eternal punishment for failing. Is this kind of like the mermaid thing where, do <laughs> you know, the real story of the little mermaid where. Yeah, she turns into bubbles. Yeah, it's so sad. It's very because sad. Because he couldn't just fucking deal. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know. Like, it, that's that's what that's the kind of horror of it to me in that moment. It's not just that she turns into a creature and he's disgusted by it. I know he still she, loves her. Yeah. He's still like, just go back. <laughs> yeah, like she, it's not that she she turns into a, a monster and flies away, and now he's just alone and sad and pathetic. Like it's not like his career flops, and now he's no. They have a monster to human embrace before she murders him. Yeah, it's like she has to kill him now. It's. That's that's what sucks about it is that n- none of them are happy about it. It's not just that he made a mistake and he has to live with it. It's that it's the death of the both of them and and that it's the woman that he loves that has to kill him too. And but they did have 10 perfect years together. 10 perfect years. And that's, you know, that's more perfect love than some people get. So they should just be grateful. I I I there's I a... don't know why they didn't move out of that <laughs> gross apartment. <laughs> yeah. I the, the interesting thing too is when you see the gargoyle set up, uh, when she's up on her perch and she's now got the two baby gargoyles with her, sort of like framed on the side as an empty perch. <gasps> Oh. So at some point, I guess they would have both just become gargoyles together, maybe? Or like at the end of their life or something? Maybe. I have no idea. Oh. Maybe at some point she would reveal that to him, and then they would both monstrously turn into gargoyles. Hmm. That would have been interesting. That's interesting. I didn't notice that. It feels like so mean. Like like the, this, It is this a sad story. one, and it's a sad one to end on because... Um, you are very sympathetic to the monster, even though, like, why did you have to kill the bartender? <laughs> <laughs> to eat him. Like, I don't know. Maybe, uh, yes, maybe uh, yeah, that's, that's true. But I, I doesn't it feel like he entered into a bargain that he didn't know, like, anything about, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, but that's the eeriness of it. That's, yeah, yeah. like, you know, she's she's not going to tell him that he takes the ribbon off, her head's going to fall off. That's just, just don't take it off. Yeah. Don't ask questions. <laughs> it's such a great story. I would, I, I, you could make a movie... You know, tomorrow, that's essentially the same story. Yeah. I would watch the fuck out of yeah, it. Yeah, and I honestly, the second it started, I was like, oh my God, is she a gargoyle? <laughs> <laughs> but I loved every minute of it. Honestly, I think it's my favorite segment. They really go out on a, on a high note. That's, that's, that's the hard thing about this. I don't know what the best segment is. And the wraparound's also great. The wraparound is great. So how would you, okay, so you, Lover's, Lover's Vow is your favorite, followed by? <sighs> tie for Cat and Mummy. Tie for Cat and Mummy. Lover's Vow is real good, but I think, I think my top, my top is the cat from hell. Yeah. I can't get, I can't get over how fucking But you really like looks. mummies. 
I love mummies, <laughs> which is why it's a tie with the lover's and vow. <laughs> I really like gargoyles. So. <laughs> like, and Medusa. You love you love anything that turns into stone. Well, I, and I like things that fly. I like bats. Gargoyles yeah. are like fucking monster bats. Yeah. What a what a great series of stories. Oh, we also didn't we also didn't say that in the wraparound at the end. Timmy throws some marbles and she falls into the oven. Tim, Timmy has one more story to tell. A story <laughs> that's not from the tales from the dark side. He's got his own story. He's telling like and one that's got a happy ending, right? So yeah, like he he's narrating what he's doing and how he's defeating the the witch. Yeah, he gets her a trip on some marbles. She she impales herself on her on her cooking utensils, and he pushes her in the oven. Then he eats a cookie. He's like, Dad, don't you don't you just love happy endings? I would be so sick of cookies because that's all she was giving him to eat. <laughs> yeah, but now this one's for him. You know, this is my cookie. What a great horror anthology. Yeah, I had I had so much fun with both of these movies. Yeah, so much so I'm repeating my score. I'm doing another four out of four. Oh, I'm also giving a four out of four on this one. This yeah. one, this is a perfect movie. So much fucking fun. Yeah, the the body bags was truly like one of the best rediscoveries of the year, and it's just been the perfect amount of time since I last watched Tales from the Dark Side. Man, this this fucking movie delivers. Yeah, we need to. Uh... Get on Amazon and order a box set. <laughs> yeah, you know the stupid thing? It was on sale recently with Shout Factory, and I I was, like, like last week. There's no way it would have arrived here in time for us to watch it for the podcast. And I was like, should I just buy it? I mean, I'm pretty sure I really like this, but it's been a while since I've seen it. Should have fucking done it. Now yeah, because we paid to rent it on YouTube. And, and now, now I got to pay full price. <laughs> <laughs> But that's just our thoughts on Tales from the Dark Side, guys. Let us know what you think of this movie, what your favorite segment is, and what some of your other favorite horror anthologies are. Yeah, because I feel like we we have gone down a tunnel we cannot turn back from. Uh, I, I, now I'm just like, fuck it. Let's just, we're, we're a horror anthology podcast for the next <laughs> year and a half until we run out of material. Thank you so much for being a fan of Nightmare on Film Street and listening to this episode. If you are new to the pod, check back in the feed. There are tons of hours of content for you to listen to. Uh, make sure you subscribe and please leave a five-star rating and review wherever you're listening to this or just a rating if you're on Spotify. Uh, it really helps the show grow and find more listeners like you. And if you've already binged the back catalog and you need more Nightmare, you can join the Fiend Club now. Support the show and get hours of bonus content. It's waiting for you right now at nofspodcast.com slash fiendclub. There's a link in the show notes. We've made it easy for you. Uh, we've actually got a whole bunch of bonus episodes uh, that we put out in October that are free for you to listen to right now. Yeah, if you want to get a taste of the Fiend Club, just go to the post there and there are a few that are unlocked for you. You don't even have to sign up. We'll be back again next week, but until then, I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay creepy. It appears you made it out alive, but we'll get you next time. Help us to grow the horde. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. More terror can be found lurking on our website, nofspodcast.com. Until next time, stay creepy, fiends.